Let me guess. Unknown caller. You could reduce the number of unwanted calls and emails with online privacy protection. The latest innovation from Discover will help regularly remove your personal info, like your name and address, from 10 popular people search websites that could sell your data. And we'll do it for free. Activate in the Discover app. See terms and learn more at discover.com slash online privacy protection. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. No one has ever made an impact by standing on the sidelines, whimpering, complaining, or protesting without taking action. We make progress by implementing our ideas. Pharmacists must take action. This is Polititalk Rx, the highly charged, sometimes controversial, political internet radio talk show dedicated to the profession of pharmacy. The policies that shape our healthcare system are complex and pharmacists, pharmacy professionals, and industry stakeholders must have a seat at the table to participate in conversations, discussions, and debates, which lead to actions that drive change supporting the profession of pharmacy. This podcast is intended to shake up the status quo and promote change to promote the profession of pharmacy while advocating for better patient care delivered by pharmacists. Polititalk Rx is part of the U.S. healthcare system's largest and most influential network of podcasts dedicated to our profession, the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, this is Todd Urey, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, excited about today's episode. Politics is a big part of healthcare. It has to be. We have to be able to educate uh, people that are out there speaking on behalf at the state, federal, even international levels about how policy impacts healthcare, how how policy trickles down and affects the efficiency and the spending of funds, uh, tax dollars, obviously, that will impact millions of people, 300 million Americans, 300,000 pharmacists, uh, pharmacists seeing their patients 10 to 1 to the primary care physician. So having a gong that we can bang through the Pharmacy Podcast Nation um, about politics has been very important to me. And that's why we have Polititalk Rx as the very first politically oriented and focused podcast, part of our um, Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm excited to bring our hosts to the table to really kind of take those subjects, those very specific subjects, maybe by state, maybe by federal, and really grow out a great discussion. Uh, John David Shepper, uh, Dr. Shepper, um, very excited that you've taken the helm of Polititalk Rx, and it's nice to have you here. Thanks, Todd. I'm really excited to to be a part of this journey and and uh, and and help other pharmacists who are interested in these subjects, but don't necessarily know where to look for the information and and how to uh, digest it and, and really get that out to to people within our profession. So, uh, thank you for having me on here. Thank you for uh, including me in your journey. And and like I said, looking forward to it. Absolutely. Today, sorry. Absolutely. This is our journey. It's funny that uh, three hundred thousand active pharmacists can be so impactful to, um, you know, to a nation. And it's the associations, it's the state and federal associations that we look to, to advance uh, the mission. And there's a collective mission right now that we can talk about regarding provider status, regarding PBM reform. But you have a very special episode with a guest today, 
This guest is part of one of the largest organizations focused on health system pharmacy in the world, uh, the ASHP, the American Society of Health System Pharmacists. Um, and I want you to introduce um, our special guest today. Yes, happy to. Uh, I, and I'm really honored to. So today I'm joined by Tom Krause. Uh, he currently serves as the Vice President of Government Relations at ASHP. He's previously served as Deputy Staff Director of Health uh, on the U.S. Senate Committee for Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. He's also been a part of the FDA, where he served as Chief of Staff uh, and Associate FDA Commissioner for Legislation. He's served as a Health Policy Management and Life Sciences Senior Executive, and so clearly he's been heavily involved in legislation and regulatory issues for many years that influences both the profession of pharmacy, but more importantly, our patients. And so he brings a wealth of knowledge. It's truly an honor to speak with Tom today. So Tom, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here and have a conversation about uh, what's going on in pharmacy and what we can do to push the policy forward. Awesome. I don't know if if either of you guys are are golfers, but Tom, when I look at your list of accomplishments in your career, I feel a bit like uh, Phil Mickelson in the video where the announcer is ringing off uh, Tiger Woods accomplishments and he's like, Lord have mercy, this guy, he's done everything. So um, so you should be truly proud of your career because it's it's quite something. Oh, thank to, you. Uh, <laughs> it's a very generous comparison. But <laughs> to to jump into it today. Uh, on this episode or today's episode of Polititalk RX, we'll be covering a handful of topics. We'll start off with CMS pass-through funding. We'll move into one of Tom's new favorite subjects, and that is white bagging and, and the complications that we can see there. And then we'll talk about pr uh, provider status. So, Tom, if you don't mind starting us off, we'll we'll get started with pass-through funding. And and I'd really like you to explain what pass-through funding is. And then related to pharmacy, how does it affect our residency programs? Uh, yeah, so that's a great question. So, so residency funding, uh, folks may not realize that, that pharmacy residencies, uh, PGY1 residencies, are funded by CMS. And, and what happens is health uh, hospitals are able to, or, or providers, any the, 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 the sponsor of the residency is able to what's called pass through the funding. So they, they basically, they calculate the costs that they have that are attributable to that uh, residency program and, and CMS um, helps helps reimburse them for the cost of that. And that, that, that can mean, um, you know, covering the cost of, of the pharmacy resident themselves, but also, also some of the cost of faculty that are associated with educating that, um, that pharmacy resident. And that's, uh, that's, um, you know, that really is what enables us to have um, large-scale pharmacy residency programs. Um, you know, the, the same funding does not exist for for PGY twos, um, kind of other other more specialized residency programs. Uh, that is something that we certainly would love to see. Um, uh, but but um, at, at its foundation, that PGY one PGY one residencies are supported by the CMS program. Yeah, and and I think it's 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 one of those ideas or, or concepts that if you've never really been introduced to it before, you might not understand how it can influence our health system. And and so I'm currently in my my residency at MUSC Health down in Charleston, South Carolina, right now. And what I can say is that 
from a from a health system level, you know, as far as PGY one residents, we have ten moving on to twelve PGY one residents this coming year, and the services that that they are able to offer and, and the scope with which they are able to provide services to our, our patients is, is massive. And so without that funding, um, it, it seems that, that health systems would have to retract some of the, some of the care they're able to provide. And, and one of those ideas or, or recent, you know, news clippings that I, that I wanted to bring up with you is that, uh, back in March, the U.S. District Court of South Carolina actually granted MUSC Health a motion for a summary judgment. And, and this was against um, HHS, who at the time had disallowed, I believe, two years of pass-through funding for MUSC's PGY-1 residency costs. And, and I was hoping, you know, you could provide some details or background on that case. And then, you know, why is it that HHS was withholding that funding? And what is it that MUSC and, and other health systems in the future need to do to ensure that, that they continue to receive that very important funding? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think the the scale of this is really pretty profound. So, you know, as you were mentioning at MUSC, you're talking about uh, 12 residents, um, you know, multiply that you know, across the country um, on at, at basically every major health system. Uh, you're talking about an enormous class of, of residents who are, at least in part, uh, funded by this CMS funding resource. Um, and what has happened over the past uh, two or three years is we've seen um, CMS try to pull back funding from some of those programs. And that's really concerning because if that, if that kind of catches fire and goes across the country, you know, those residency programs are going to be in jeopardy. And we, we definitely don't want that to be the case. Um, so what has happened is CMS, uh, so CMS is the, is the federal agency that administers the Medicare program. Okay. But, um, CMS doesn't, um, you know, doesn't have an army of staff uh, that go out um, and, and work with every individual residency program. The way it works is basically they have regional contractors um, called MACs, Medicare Administrative Contractors, and they make a bunch of uh, local decisions for CMS about how payment is administered by the Medicare program. I know this sounds super wonky, but but here's why it matters. These um, these uh, contractors that work with CMS um, have been making kind of differing decisions about um, uh, what should be allowed to be covered uh, in a residency program as a cost that CMS would would compensate the, the system for. And in fact, is saying that some the, all of the funding for some systems should be should be pulled back, um, going back several years, which would just be crippling to to pharmacy residency programs. That's that's just really a pretty, um, that's a pretty terrifying thought to, to have uh, systems lose multiple years of residency funding. And, and what's going on is fundamentally, uh, a, a residency program has to kind of control the academic experience, the training experience of the resident. Um, there's usually, usually a, a residency program director who has the kind of direct control of the, um, the residency experience. Um, but as hospitals have been acquired by health systems, um, these, these CMS contractors have been saying, hey, wait a second, uh, maybe, the, maybe the RPD, the residency program director, doesn't really have control. Maybe it's the, the system level that has control. And so therefore we should uh, deny funding for, for 
uh, you know, for these residency programs. Well, that's that doesn't make sense. I mean, that's just fundamentally inconsistent with how kind of the health system is organized today, right? I mean, um, it, it's look, it's a reality that that hospitals are part of health systems. Um, you know, obviously, if you're part of the whatever the Johns Hopkins system, you want the Johns Hopkins name associated with your residency. There, there's a prestige associated with that, but that shouldn't mean that you know, that the the um, kind of regional hospital that's part of a Hopkins system shouldn't shouldn't get funding or, or you know, pick, pick your pick your large system and, and you can apply the same uh, kind of questions. And similarly, um, there have been kind of questions asked about, well, if if pharmacy uh, um, school of pharmacy faculty are involved with in training residents, does that mean it's really the School of Pharmacy that's in control of the residency program as opposed to the individual uh, hospital site? Um, and, and again, no, that's that it's a good thing that pharmacy, uh, you know, that schools of pharmacy should be should be participating in training our, our residents and, and having access to uh, experts in their field. So, you know, basically these these decisions for Medicare really just seem inconsistent with with kind of good practice in training of of residents. Um, and so uh, we've been pushing back on that. I know your institution, MUSC, uh, pushed back uh, in court and, and, and won, and, and we are thrilled, uh, thrilled about that decision. Um, we, you know, we've been filing um, briefs in, in cases to support uh, health systems pushing back on this. Um, and, and we've asked CMS to provide some very clear guidance on what health systems need to do to comply. I, you know, I don't think anyone wants to skirt the rules, but you got to give us good guidance. You know, we can't, we're not going to do silly things like have a separate staffing system for just for, uh, you know, one institution separate from the whole, um, the, you know, broader, broader health system that it's, that, that, a, that a hospital is part of. So, you know, we need to solve those kinds of things and CMS needs to just provide modernized rules that really explain how to comply. Um, but I'm glad to see that the court uh, decided uh, in MUSC's favor and hopefully that will um, you know, that will play out across the country. Um, we, we, you know, over the course of the, the last year, particularly with the pandemic, there haven't been nearly as many audits. So the, the pushback on funding has scaled back, um, but we're gonna be on the lookout uh, to make sure as those CMS audits tick back up that uh, residency funding is not, you know, put in further jeopardy. Yeah, I, I, I can see that over the next, year or so as we start to enter this enter this post pandemic phase that that the audits and and potentially some of the issues related with those audits will will scale back up I, you know i know that ashp filed the amicus brief in support of of this ruling you know are, and you mentioned uh, a minute ago that that other organizations are likely experiencing similar you know similar discrepancies uh, with, with their audits what do you feel like this really gives you the foundation and the foothold as far as a downstream effect to be able to make cases? And and then what if you can talk a little bit about ASHP and and what you guys are doing to to say, you know, previously there's this uh, there's this arbitrary list of things that we have to to check. But are we in the process of of asking CMS to make certain boxes of this is what we need to provide to you so that we can be approved for a pass through funding? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think with regard to the court decision, I think it certainly it's, it's good to have that precedent out there that that uh, you know others can rely on. Uh, you know, there there are other cases um, out there across the country. Um, you know, uh, I think more importantly, 
Uh, it puts CMS uh, on notice that the courts kind of don't think their position is 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 uh, really defendable, um, and they need to they need to provide some clarity. Um, no one's trying to. No one's trying to skirt the rules. You just you CMS. You just got to tell us how we make our residency programs comply in a way that's consistent with, you know, how healthcare is delivered today. Um, so we've asked them to do things like, you know, clarify that, um, you know, the 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 broader health system that you are that your your institution is part of, you know, that 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 can be listed on on residence, residency completion certificates for for the resident. Give us some guidance on on how pharmacy, uh, school of pharmacy, or school of medicine staff can be involved. You know, faculty can be involved in training. Uh, that's a good thing. We should all acknowledge it's a good thing. CMS, you gotta you gotta give us some guidance on how to do that so that it's um, so that our residents get the benefit of that expertise um, without compromising um, funding for the program. Um, you know, give us some guidance on on some basic things like, you know an individual residency program where the institution is not going to have a separate payroll system and, you know, and accounting system than the broader health system that it's part of, uh, that has nothing to do with residency training. Like, why would that be a, a disqualifier for residency funding? That makes no sense. I think, I think they kind of get that that is um, an antiquated way of thinking about it, but they, they need to modernize these rules. And so we've we've given them a whole list of questions. In fact, we've we've proposed answers that we hope they'll um, they'll adopt. Uh, and we've been working with uh, members of Congress to kind of push CMS to to clarify some of these issues. So I think we'll I think we'll make some progress. And I think certainly uh, the court decision in MUSC's case uh, will help kind of push CMS to to clarify these. Uh, these concerns for funding, because you know, at the end of the day, um, it it is not optional. We need to protect pharmacy residency funding. Absolutely, yeah, and and I don't think you can really emphasize that enough. Where, where again, without these programs, uh, uh, many health systems would have to scale back some of the patient care services that they provide, and and hopefully. You know, with the establishment of the, of this court case, and and like you said, ASHP's uh, push that that we can maybe start to see some of that funding for PGY two programs because they become very specialized, and and again, the the next level of advanced clinical services that pharmacists are able to provide, uh, it, it's really. Um, it, 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 we have to have it for great patient care. So, so excited to hear that. Um, the next topic that I, I want to address with you is white bagging and. And we spoke on the phone, you know, a few weeks or months back, and and you were really excited about this topic and 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 kind of the, you know, the the battleground that this brings uh, for for pharmacy and and for insurance companies and and really the whole healthcare industry as uh, you know as one. Can you break down? for listeners who either may not have heard of white bagging or don't understand the issues. Can you break down what white bagging, and I, and I think we're also talking about brown bagging here. Can you break down those practices for us? Yeah, yeah. The, so this probably is more familiar for, for health system uh, pharmacists, but um, so what white bagging is, it's, it is, it is a process where, um, uh, where a payer, okay, the insurance company or their PBM will mandate that uh, a drug uh, for, for uh, a clinician administered drug uh, be filled by a specialty pharmacy that is associated with the payer as opposed to being filled um, by the provider through their pharmacy. Um, 
And so that I think on its face sounds like, well, okay, well maybe that would can work. Um, but actually it is enormously disruptive to care. So, you know, if you have an oncology patient who is on a, a sort of complex regimen, they, you know, they may have a weight change. They may, you know, have um, kind of various reasons that they need to modify their therapy or they just need to initiate therapy uh, relatively quickly. Um, and, and the result of white bagging is that, you know, the provider who is going to be administering that drug, they can't just go to their own pharmacy and say, okay, I've got that, I've got that drug. I'm going to prepare it uh, as needed for this particular patient and administer it to, to the patient. It means they've got to go uh, to the, to the uh, insurer, work with the, the specialty pharmacy that is under contract with that insurer. That, that specialty pharmacy is going to um, ship a product to the hospital. It's not, they, they are, they're considering to have been dispensed. So that means it's not actually part of the hospital's inventory. Um, so, you know, who knows if the kind of, if, if it's been well temperature controlled, you know, we don't know anything about the, the safety and security and kind of providence of that drug. Um, but the, the provider is going to be asked to administer that drug to the patient, even though they don't have control of the product and it's, they don't own the product. Um, and that, that really causes a lot of operational and patient safety concerns. Um, you know, it, it, it really just, you know, if you think about kind of, um, kind of good practice delivering care and having kind of simplified processes where you want to minimize the opportunities for error, uh, this process just kind of compounds multiple fold the, the number of steps in the process and opportunities for errors to enter, um, you know, to enter into delivery of that product. Um, and, and it also potentially creates delays. You know, we've, we've, we've uh, pulsed our, our members to find out, you know, is this actually disrupting care? And, and absolutely it is. We're hearing of um, patients who've had their therapy delayed by um, several weeks, uh, which, you know, for an oncology patient, depending on, you know, the particular situation, um, that, that could have real, um, uh, real impacts on patient health. Um, you know, we've we've heard similar situations for uh, for NICU patients. I mean, it, come on, we, we've got to be able to um, get patients the drugs that they need without having to jump jump through these kind of onerous uh, administrative hurdles. So um, I am I'm really excited about the progress we're making. So um, uh, ASHP has been working with uh, the AHA, the American Hospital Association. Um, uh, we together approached the FDA and said, you know, FDA, we know that you have been working to strengthen drug supply chain security. Um, this process known as white bagging just blows a hole right through that. We, you know, if you really want to have a secure supply chain, we need to fix this. Um, and they're, you know, I think they're, they're open to working with us and we're going to kind of do some education of, of the FDA. Um, and I also should say that, you know, 60, uh, 60 health systems also joined us uh, with AHA in, in reaching out to the, the Food and Drug Administration. So there is a, there's definitely a coalition of, um, of hospitals um, and the AHA that are very focused on this issue and concerned about patient safety concerns. Um, uh, oncology uh, uh, groups have also expressed a lot of concerns about this. You know, they have seen care uh, disrupted for their patients and, 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 you know, view that as unacceptable. So, you know, we're excited that there's kind of a, an interprofessional 
uh, interest in in pushing back on on this practice known as white bagging. Um, Right now, where we are is we've had this conversation with the FDA. We're going to work with them. Um, but I think a lot of the action is going to be at the state level. So uh, in the past a couple months, we've seen five states introduce legislation to, um, to ban or to put uh, significant restrictions on this practice known as white bagging. Um, We've seen um, two of the two state laws pass, uh, two states, you know, pass the bills into law. Um, uh, we're also seeing boards of pharmacy get very focused on this. You know, they're trying to figure out, is this really an insurance issue that the, the Department of Insurance has to deal with? Or are there, you know, practice and patient safety issues that, that would implicate, um, you know, board of pharmacy? Um, and, and give them a reason to engage. And I think I think they are going to start engaging. You know, some some states have um, central fill laws that could be violated by um, this practice of white bagging. Others have redispensing laws. So, so you know, I think there is there are opportunities for boards of pharmacy to um, uh, to address this. Um, you know, we're, we're excited to see NABP is also uh, talking about this issue and working with their members to, to think about how it can be addressed. Um, and we're excited to work with them. So, you know, I think this is a, an area where we're going to make significant progress. Um, you know, we shouldn't uh, let insurers dictate the way that our patients receive care. Um, ASHP has developed a, a model legislation model that, that states can, can use to push back on this process. Um, and, you know, we'd encourage uh, any of your listeners to, to check that out. Um, you can find that on our, on our advocacy website. Um, there's a specific page focused on addressing white bagging. Um, you did mention brown bagging. So brown bagging is a, these names are, um, I think kind of unfortunate, unfortunate names, but Innovative, uh, brown huh? bagging is kind of, is a, is a similar process where rather than the, the insurer saying, um, you have to work with our specialty pharmacy. What they do is they dispense the product directly to the to the patient, and then the patient literally uh, carries the drug in to be administered by the physician or or or, or pharmacy. Um, you know, the the sort of caricature is in a what in, in a brown bag. Um, so that's where the name comes from. Um, you know, that's, that's another concern and, and many hospitals, uh, already, um, have, uh, instituted policies where they, they limit, uh, brown bagging as a practice just because of the potential for, um, uh, you know, product integrity issues when you don't know how it's been temperature controlled, if a patient's going to keep in their car or, or whatever. Um, so, um, you know, I think these, these issues are related, but, um, you know, the, the bigger push right now is trying to, trying to push back on this white bagging concept. Yeah, that that's, um, you know, it's exciting to see all of that work take place in what feels like a fairly short amount of time. Uh, you know, when you mentioned brown bagging and, and you brought up this topic, I started looking into it and, and I was curious, kind of the same question you had asked uh, some of, you know, some of the uh, members of ASHP, are, are we really seeing issues with this? And and, and just through a, a few minutes of looking, um, there, there were stories where it, uh, medications are shipped to patients' home, they sit outside for days, or like you say, sit in the car. And then moral of the story is, is at the end of the day, whenever those medications are administered, it's the responsibility of the provider who's administering that medication. And so uh, when you're unable to vouch for the integrity of the medication it's uh it's certainly a, a a tricky practice there of of who then 
who then is responsible for any adverse effects because of that? And are we even treating our patients if the integrity has been uh, has been manipulated in some way? So, um, so yeah, that that's awesome. I, I was reading through the the letter that that ASHP and AHA formulated to the FDA, and, and it does seem to have a, a support from a pretty wide group of people. And and you mentioned a handful of states that are creating legislation to either minimize or, or stop that practice. You'll have to help me with the last one, but right now it looks like Louisiana, Virginia, Arkansas, and Indiana are, are among those states, and, and there should be one more. And then, um, and then we have ASHP and, and all of the state affiliates who, like you said, are testifying with the boards of pharmacy, and we've, we've seen that in Florida, Texas, California, and Missouri. So we've got a pretty, uh, a pretty good involvement from the states, and I, and I hope to see that pick up here. Um, yeah, yeah I, can't, I can't remember offhand what the, what the other state was that introduced, but um, you, know, you mentioned that the, this kind of the, the interest in this has really picked up in the past, uh, past few months, and we're, yeah, we're really excited about that. And I, I, think, I think kind of health systems have kind of just woken up to, whoa, this is really disrupting our, our care delivery. You know, we could have recorded this uh, podcast five years ago, and, and white bagging was out there. It was just at a way different scale. You know, it was, oh, hey, we have this unique patient situation. Maybe we don't stock the drug. We need some help getting access to this product. Well, fine. That's that's an appropriate use right. of, of, of an external specialty pharmacy. Um, but now this has ballooned to, you know, we, we did a kind of recent uh, um, study, and it, it's well over 100 products now that that, uh, that payers are mandating be um uh, sourced in this this way that is potentially disruptive to you know patient care and so that's I think hospitals have just figured out look this is this is kind of ballooned in a way that is that is now disruptive to care right absolutely well we'll move into provider status and and it seems like you know I started pharmacy school back in 2015 and um, and I'm not sure when the official you know push for provider status started I, I I recently was looking at the ambulatory care summit that was held back in 2014. And, and that's the first I can find where, where we're really like pushing for that as, as a profession. And so, so for me, provider status has been, has been my pharmacy career. It, it's always been the talk. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that, that you can provide us some updates on, on where we stand and, and what ASHP has done to ensure that pharmacists can provide medication, uh, you know, and, and be able to bill for their services. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll, let me, let me kind of tell you about where we are with the legislation, but then I want to tell you about kind of how I think about provider status, even beyond the legislation. Um, so uh, so we have been working very closely with APHA uh, to to have the um, the provider status legislation reintroduced, and we've got you know many of the national pharmacy organizations have have been uh, working together uh, uh, in support of that bill. We're, we're thrilled um, by the the kind of collaboration between the pharmacy uh, organizations. Um, over you know over a hundred different pharmacy organizations have supported the the reintroduced. Uh, bill, um, you know, and that includes uh, all of the NASPA organizations, all of the ASHP state affiliates, um, you know, it, it, you know, virtually all of the national pharmacy associations. It's really, um, you know, something that the pharmacy community has come together around. Um, but I think what's what's important is uh, this time, uh, you know, we don't want to just kind of repeat where we've where we've been. Um, What's, what's different this time is 
there is support well beyond the pharmacy community. So um, there are over 25 uh, state rural health associations that have come out in support of the bill. You know, we didn't see that level of support from um, non-pharmacy organizations before. Um, uh, I know that there is a letter circulating um, among health systems right now talking about how this bill would allow them to provide medication therapy, medication management services, you know, kind of in collaboration with their, their clinical pharmacists and their uh, physician providers, um, and really um, incorporate that better in, in uh, their care delivery. And so we've had over uh, over 50 health systems come out and support. And these are you know really prominent health systems that have come out, like um, Ascension, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic. You know, you know, big names in uh, in healthcare. And so that is a real shift, right? That is uh, those are organizations that have a lot of sway with their um, their members of Congress. Um, and you know, I, I am hopeful that that uh, you know additional interest beyond the pharmacy community, um, you know, escalates the, um, the you know the status of the bill and the eagerness of of Congress to to solve this. And then I think there's also something else that's different, which is um, you know, COVID happened, right? We 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 all experienced that together, and as a nation. Um, we asked pharmacy uh, to help solve the problem, right? We, we asked pharmacists to, to help uh, administer COVID-19 tests. Um, we asked um, them to help with vaccinate, you know, mass vaccination efforts. Um, we helped, they were involved in kind of managing all of the disruptions in, in drug supply chains early on and, and delivering critical care to patients. Um, and policymakers saw that, right? And so at the national level, um, we've seen, um, we've seen HHS use something called the PREP Act, which is an emergency authority they have to expand um, the scope of services that pharmacists can provide in all states, right? So, you know, I, I haven't seen that happen before where, where they have stepped in and say, no, actually, you know, it, we need to make sure that in every state scope of practice enables pharmacists to, to provide um, pediatric vaccinations and COVID vaccines and COVID testing and flu testing and RSV testing. Like that's, that is a big step to happen at a, at a federal level. Um, you know, and then independent of COVID, we've seen states really turning to pharmacists uh, as a key access point for patient care. So over 30, uh, well, I think it's 33 or 34 Medicare programs now recognize pharmacists as providers. That's huge, yeah. right? And, and, um, and, and so I think that's really exciting. Um, you know, uh, in, it's, it's exciting in its own right that patients, Medicaid patients in those states can access pharmacist care, but it's also exciting because it puts pressure on Medicare to, to come in line with the states. You know, if, if we can say to Medicare, hey, you are out of step with the way care is delivered by in, in states, you're out of step with what happens in the commercial market, you're out of step with what happens in Medicaid, and, and get this, uh, even the program for the uninsured, uh, the COVID funding for, for patient care for the uninsured, that program specifically identifies pharmacists as providers. So they can be reimbursed for caring for the uninsured, but they can't be reimbursed for caring for Medicare patients. Just think about that. Right. And then think about, do you want to be the member of Congress who has to explain to senior citizens in their district why Medicaid patients get access to pharmacist care, the uninsured 
get access to pharmacist care, but Medicare beneficiaries do not, right? So, so we want to kind of continually be boxing Medicare into a smaller and smaller corner uh, that they cannot defend because, you know, it's getting harder for them to, to defend that position. So I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about the, the support that's, that's uh, you know, come out for the bill. And I'm excited about just kind of the, the overall environment and how pharmacists are being uh, used. Yeah, it's... Um... It is a slow and steady race, as is anything with with uh, government. And so, uh, you know, when when I like I said, when I first got into pharmacy school and this was the push, you feel like, OK, this makes sense. We're going to we're going to do this by next year and we're going to change practice. And um, then you end up disappointed because it doesn't happen that quickly. But it's this slow and steady pressure that that organizations like ASHP have been able to provide that that are helping push the needle. So, you know, we certainly appreciate your your help there. I want to uh, highlight two of the states that that I think you were directly involved with and that ASHP is highlighted through your email service. Uh, you know, Colorado, Colorado passed, um, and, and just for our listeners, House Bill 21-1275 that allows uh, that modifies the state Medicaid program to include payments to pharmacists. And then we have Nevada, who recently passed three bills, one that uh, revises rules for the collaborative practice agreements. We now have, far, or, and, and they ha- now have pharmacists able to prescribe and dispense PrEP and PEP for HIV, and, and then a hormonal contraception bill. So we do see that push towards um, certain areas within pharmacy that we are allowing pharmacists to help meet the need of, of our patients. So, so it's exciting to see that we're taking those steps. And, and I just want to ask you, what is it that that we need to do as a profession, pharmacists, technicians, uh, people like Todd, who are who are pharmacists' biggest fans. Um, what is it that we need to do as as a profession to keep moving that needle? Yeah, I think it's I think it really is about um, getting the word out uh, that um, that you know the role that pharmacists are playing right now in in delivering patient care um, when they are you know when they are allowed to. Um, and then just pointing out the inconsistency, right? I think it is really important to frame this not as, you know, if we try to make pharmacist provider status about benefiting pharmacy, we're going to lose, right? right? We're not going to we're not going to get there. But when we make it about uh, demonstrating that this is an important source of care for patients, and there are some patients who are not having access to that care. You know, that's the thing what what resonates with with policymakers and the public. So I think we always need to, um, you know, obviously we, you know, we as 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 pharmacists, we you know we want to be recognized as providers, um, but we need to recognize when we talk about this externally that um, the framing needs to be about the patient um, and how this is going to enable us to to support uh, our patients, uh, you know, as we were trained. So I think um, let's talk about it in that light. Uh, and I think it, then it makes it a lot harder for for policymakers to kind of disagree with what is with what clearly what the states have already identified uh, as an important solution for for their patients. So, um, you know, I think something else you can do if you are practicing in uh, you know in any given setting, uh, whether you're practicing in a, a health system, in a community pharmacy, uh, in a physician office. Um, you know, educate uh, other folks around you. Um, you know, we need to get um, other elements of the healthcare community to say, hey, I work with a pharmacist. They allow me to work and kind of serve my patient better. Um, and that is why um, 
I, as a non-pharmacist, support provider status, right? So I think going and having those conversations is really important. Uh, it's important to have those conversations with physicians in your community, particularly those that you uh, maybe have a collaborative practice agreement with, you know, really explain to them why this matters and how it would benefit their patients. Um, and then, you know, if you work in a, in a health system, you know, you have a lot more political influence than you may realize. You know, if you can get a health system, which is probably one of the biggest employers in your community to say this matters, that gives you a lot of leverage. And I think, you know, I think advocacy can be a little intimidating. You know, you've got to, um, people think you got to like, you know, have be best friends with a senator or something. That's, that's not what it's about, right? You can have impact uh, just in your own organization to say, hey, um, you know, educate your uh, your leadership team and say, hey, we would be able to provide these services um, for our patients if a pharmacist could be reimbursed for that. You know, let's let's share our kind of share our voice, add our voice to the kind of chorus of organizations that that have recognized that pharmacist provider status is important. Um, I think those are ways that that you can advocate, you know, in your own community. Uh, in, a, in a kind of safe way that, that is maybe comfortable for you. Yeah, that that's awesome. I think that's the next level step that that we have to start taking. And 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 I I love the way you phrase that. That we've got to start. Uh, we, we've got to start having other professions recognize the the value that we're bringing and have them advocate for us as well. It, it's got to be a, a multi pronged approach. So I certainly appreciate that point of view. Can I can I just add one one more? Absolutely. Thing? You know, you were mentioning. Um, uh, kind of the, the, just the exciting progress at the state level. And I, and I, I just, I do want to share kind of a pers perspective about provider status. You, you know, as you were saying, look, this is, it's, uh, this has kind of been a long process and it, and it will continue to be. I cannot promise you that this is the year federal provider status happens, right? I, I can't say that. Uh, I can say that the environment has improved. I can say that we've got more support than ever. Um, but um, I think the way to think about provider status is incremental. You know, think about we're going to get some victories every year at the state level. And if your state has yet to recognize pharmacists as providers in the Medicaid program, go bang on that issue, right? Like, and, and, and when you win, um, celebrate it because it benefits your patients, but also celebrate because it gets us that much closer to federal provider status. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to continue to push uh, the federal government for some, some, some opportunities that don't require legislation, um, like uh, like expanding the Prep Act, um, you know, to, to to allow pharmacists to provide certain services, you know, push the government to say, hey, when we use the Prep Act, if we actually want ex services expanded, we got to not just allow pharmacists to provide that service, we got to create a way to pay for it. Um, so I think you know, putting these pieces together, the the federal legislation kind of federal regulatory opportunities and the state opportunities, you know, those things all come together for, you know, year over year progress towards um, kind of a universal provider status for, for pharmacists. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a great way to put it. I'm, you know, we, we currently don't have that recognition in South Carolina and that's something that the state association here has been pushing for, for some time and we hope to continue to do so. So I can, Again, I can appreciate that that incremental step and in, in celebrating the small wins for our patients in hopes that down the road we we can um, you know it can aggregate into a big win. So, Tom, I, I appreciate your time here, you know, and explaining all of this. There certainly 
complicated topics to cover. And so I can appreciate your insight and your expertise on this. We, we sincerely appreciate your work at ASHP and, and everything that uh, the association there is doing. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Polititalk Rx, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. If you're in the profession of pharmacy or if you're in the healthcare industry, you can't afford to sit idle and not be informed about your profession. We ask you to share these podcasts with your fellow pharmacy associates, your state and local government officials, and get involved in politics in some capacity, starting with being informed. We must take action, but only when we're educated and understand the issues and policies which lead us to a better tomorrow for our profession. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Polititalk Rx and send us an email at polititalkrx at gmail.com.